Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us the heritage that you have given us that is rooted in men who were students of your word, men who were committed to the truth of your word, men who let their the study of your word radically change and transform their understanding of how governments should function, how nations should be run, and they understood the key principles of uh, godly leadership. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we continue our study on how we should make decisions when picking uh, leaders, how we should make decisions in the voting booth. We pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, that we might accurately reflect your word, that we might be ready to submit to your word, and that we might clearly understand the implications of the uh, patterns and principles that you've laid out in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we've gone through this series, I've laid out three basic principles that sort of undergird everything that I'm talking about. The first is that all Christians or citizens of the United States should vote wisely and intelligently. It's part of our responsibility as a citizen to do a good job of being citizens. And so we should, as Christians, we should do it uh, even more conscientiously because everything that we do should be done to the glory of God so that we should do uh, all that we can to vote wisely and intelligently to preserve and defend the Constitution for this glorifies God. Secondly, that in light of that, the U.S. citizens, and in order to vote intelligently, the citizen should understand the thinking that's embodied in the U.S. Constitution, which unfortunately most of us weren't educated on as we were coming up through uh, public school. So if we're going to perpetuate the Constitution, we must appreciate and understand the thinking that went into it, and then we need to vote in leaders who are going to perpetuate that system because all the blessings that we have are the fruit of that kind of of thinking. And then going to the last (coughs) conclusion, that by understanding this biblical framework, that inform the uh, fathers, we can perpetuate that same system. So we start off with three uh, basic ideas related to this. The first is the concept of values. 
as I've said before, and I'll say again and again, because somebody always wakes up about the 15th time, is that whenever we make a decision, we're always deciding something that's good or better, bad or worse, or something between good and bad. But it always necessitates a value system, some sort of structure of thought that gives us the the categories, the norms and standards, the values that we need in order to make those kinds of judgments. So that implies some sort of broader, all-encompassing system of thought that we can then use to apply to these kinds of decisions. And the Bible provides such a framework coming out of the thinking of Christ, as it's called in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that God, as the creator of all things, has given us enough information where we can begin to wrestle with the Scripture, put things together, and develop a, an understanding, a framework for every area of life. This necessitates, as I pointed out, value, uh, these values. And the one question that has to be addressed that is never addressed as we have moved more and more into a, quote, secular society and there has been the attempt to divest and um, fence off any kind of religious thought outside of the sphere of civil government. But there's still values that are being taught and promoted within the framework of government. Where do those values come from? Are the values that are going to dominate in the civil arena values that are consistent with the Word of God? That's a question a Christian has to ask. They're either going to be biblical values or they're going to be non-biblical values. And to expect a Christian to somehow divorce himself from his Christianity, to compartmentalize it to Sunday morning only, and not use that framework of doctrine to evaluate candidates. And if you are a candidate... And if you are in office, to use that biblical framework as the basis for legislation. It's absurd, but we created, coming out of the 19th century, and the influence of the epistemological, philosophical shifts that took place in the history of ideas in the 19th century, part of what happened in the attack against against Christianity and against the thinking that's at the foundation of this nation was the idea of, of compartmentalization and separating the religious from uh, everyday life. And that's been very effective because most of us have grown up in a culture where the, uh, the ideas about God are not, uh, that we derive from the Scripture, theology is not thought to be at the foundation of everything else that is in society. Very few of us, if any, I think there may be one or two here who may have attended a Bible college or university at one time or another, but very few of us thought in terms of biblical thought when we went to college or university. Whatever the field is that you're, that you're studying, whether it has to do with finance or economics or science or business, how many times did you sit down and think, okay, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about the general field of study that I'm going into, and what are the parameters, what's the framework, what are the guidelines that the Word of God gives for this area of life. And, we, and that just shows that we had already become uh, brainwashed by this secular, distinct, this distinction between the secular and the biblical.
So as we began this and as we continued, we looked at the idea of values, which led to the idea of framework, and then coming to the application of that framework to uh, specific situations. And so I have always used this system based on the divine institutions plus Israel as a way of evaluating candidates. In fact, not too long ago when I was uh, telling my uh, good friend Tommy Ice about this, he said, you know, when I was a happy, hippie, holy roller, if you didn't know that, that's what Tommy was, he was a charismatic liberal and back in the early 70s, and he got a hold of some of uh, Charlie Clough's material on the Divine Institutions. He said, I listened to that tape on the Divine Institutions once, and I became a diehard conservative because I understood what the Bible taught. And uh, by the way, I mentioned in prayer meeting earlier, you can pray for Tommy. Tommy is preparing right now for a debate. He's been invited to debate the topic of are we in the end times at the Oxford Debating Club at Oxford University in England. And only, you know, usually it's people who are presidents and secretaries of state and heads of Federal Reserve Banks, things like that, that get invited to that sort of thing. And there are three in the debate. I don't know the third man. The Tommy is debating, and he's going to just, they don't know where he's coming from, and he's just going to probably uh, totally flip them out because he's going to come from a totally biblical framework. But one of the others who is uh, presenting is the editor of The Economist, which is a rather uh, liberal publication. So this should be very interesting. So pray for Tommy. And this week, Charlie Clough flew down, was to to have flown down today to Virginia to start uh, coaching, grilling, training Tommy to get him ready for his trip. I think the debate is somewhere around the 20th or the 21st of November. Anyway, so we have the divine institutions, and the divine institutions synthesizes what theologians have believed and taught, Bible believers have held about uh, the early chapters of Genesis for centuries, and that is that God built certain social structures within the very framework of, of, of the makeup of mankind as, the, as being in the image and likeness of God. And I pointed out that this is fundamental to understand this because in the Trinity, you you can look at the Trinity in terms of God's social relationships between the three persons of the Trinity and his economic relationship or how they uh, they work, what their different responsibilities and roles are, and yet they're, uh, they're interconnected. You can't divorce the economic from the social. And we see the same thing happen when God creates uh, Adam and the woman places them in the garden, that there is an economic responsibility, but there's the social. Adam is at first alone. He needs uh, a wife as an aider, And so the role of the wife as the aider is to help the husband. Uh, she is the assistant, the helper, the one who comes alongside to help him fulfill his, his, God-given, uh, his God-given role. So we, I pointed out that as man is created in the image of God, God puts into him these divine uh, institutions. They're not changeable. They're basic social structures or establishment principles that God embeds within uh, the human race. And modern paganism thinks that they're just developed 
Secondarily, as, or pragmatically, as man faces certain situations, he decides, well, this is basically a good way to go, and this will solve the problem. So they are non-changeable, which means once we start getting into different kinds of social engineering experiments, then they're always going to fall apart, and they're going to have a, a range of unintended consequences and eventually cause collapse in a culture. And I think one of the ways in which we have seen that uh, that's, that's tangential to this is in this whole collapse of the um, uh, subprime mortgage market and its relationship to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and how all of that works going back to the social agenda of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the New Deal back in 1933 when he first uh, had Fannie Mae established. And you can trace through the whole history. There's various articles out there on the Internet that you can look at how that led to different changes that were made by Lyndon Johnson as part of his war against poverty. There were other changes that took place uh, with the um, uh, Community Reinvestment Act that was signed by President Carter in 1977, other changes that took place in the 80s and in the 90s under Clinton. And all along the way, you had conservative uh, economists, conservatives, in uh, both parties at the early stage, I believe, who were sounding the alarm that there were things that were done that, that, that weren't right as they were trying to manipulate the mortgage market, and numbers just don't bend. I tried to do that all the way through uh, high school in algebra and could never, could never convince any of my math teachers that, that, that there was flexibility in the numbers. And, and eventually when you're trying to make those numbers fit this social agenda, it's, it's eventually going to come back and fall apart, which is exactly what's happened. So when we get away from the way God has structured things, uh, it's not going to uh, work. It may take years before we see the collapse, but and, and there's continued arrogance on the part of government thinking they can, they can prop this up. So we looked at these divine institutions, the first three, individual responsibility, marriage, family, or pre-fall. Second, to government, which is primarily judicial. The, the whole structure of government flows out of the judiciary, which is why it's such an important aspect related to this upcoming election. And the development of nations. The first three are developed before the fall and are designed to promote productivity and advance civilization. Because of sin and because of the collapse that takes place uh, before the fall in terms of man, I mean before the flood in terms of man's uh, rebelliousness towards God, after the flood God establishes two more institutions, government and nations. And one of the roles that you have for government is to protect those three divine institutions. That's why I spent so much time the other night on individual responsibility. I added some things on Sunday a little bit. I'll add some more things tonight, why there's this, this connection, because once you get in a culture that shifts away from enforcing and emphasizing individual responsibility, somebody has to pick up the pieces. When people stop being responsible then what happens is government moves into that vacuum and people start looking to government to do what individuals should be doing. 
And so there's a flip-flop that occurs, and people begin to look to government as the solution uh, to all the problems. And once that happens, then government uh, becomes the problem. I pointed out when talking about <clears throat> the first divine institution that this emphasizes three things. First of all, spiritual accountability of man to his creator, to God. Secondly, man was given responsibilities of fulfilling certain responsibilities, which we would classify as labor, though it's not toilsome at that point. He has work to do. He has jobs to do. He is to classify the animals. He is to uh, work in the garden. He is to protect the garden, indicating the importance of of uh, self-defense, and he has the right to enjoy the fruits of his labor, and so he can accumulate wealth, and that wealth is his because he has worked for it, he has earned it, and throughout Scripture we see the fact that God reinforces and rewards those who work and produce, and God punishes and takes away from those who do not uh, do not work. Now, what has happened in the last Uh, 150 years, is that we have seen a major shift occur in Western European culture and American culture uh, that has changed the way in which uh, we look at these things and how we look at the role of government in relationship to uh, people and in relationship to to property. And it's the result of the rise of liberal thinking which came out of the European universities in the late 1800s, I'm specifically thinking of Immanuel Kant, and the early uh, 19th century, the early 1800s, as a result of their rejection of God. And once they reject, rejected God, once God is removed, then that creates a vacuum, and what gets, something's got to get sucked into that vacuum. And what got sucked into the vacuum is man. Once man takes God out, then man became the center of all things and the ultimate determiner of truth. And so they were beginning with a mentality that man was basically good because they've rejected what the Bible says, that man is basically evil. So now they think of man as basically good, but but he is now a, a product of his environment because God is removed and man isn't a creature created in the image of God. He is now the product of chance. He's just a biological accident. So man's makeup is determined by his environment, by his social environment, by his economic environment, his education, his religion. And so that's what shapes people. And it's a, it rejects the whole concept of, of uh, personal responsibility that you are the results of the decisions that you make. And this uh, <clears throat> meant that man was viewed more and more within certain systems as a victim of forces in the environment uh, rather than one who was volitionally responsible shaping uh, his environment. And that had a lot of implications for how they viewed labor and laborers, how they viewed wealth creation, prosperity, the transfer of wealth from one generation to another, the whole idea of taking care of the poor, providing for man's uh, needs. And so this gets shifted from the individual to government. And that's where we're going tonight eventually is to look at the role of government and how the Bible sees 
the role of government. But to do that, we have to go back and show, again, these connections in terms of the uh, first divine institution. Freedom and responsibility go hand in hand. If people are not responsible, then they will abuse their freedom and the freedom will turn into anarchy. And so people have to have a system of ethics and accountability, otherwise they won't behave responsibly, unless, of course, they're inherently good. And so the the way a culture views people as being inherently bad or inherently good is going to affect their view of what, what government does. And Thomas Sowell, as I mentioned before in his book Conflict of Vision, points this out in his introduction. And this is basically what separates what separates liberalism from conservative thought, that liberalism can be traced back to the... And and one thing that all liberals hold in common is a high view of man, that man is basically good, and conservatives recognize that man is basically... that man is basically evil. Now, if we think about these two categories, these two concepts of freedom and responsibility... The more the individual is responsible for his life, for his future, for his finances, for his planning, for his prosperity, the more that the responsibility ends up with the individual, the more freedom he is going to have. The more you take that responsibility away from him and shift it to someone else or something else, for example, government, then the less freedom he's going to have. So the degree of freedom, then, is going to be directly related to his freedom to succeed or fail. Now, if he can fail, but there aren't really any negative consequences, then the only reason you can put that cushion under him financially, so that if he fails, the government's going to come along in the big nanny state and just pick him up and carry him along, is if he gets the resources to do that from somebody who has produced something. And that production comes from those who have worked and those who, who have succeeded. So those who are out there working are then going to have to have some of the things that they produce taken away from them and given to those who are non-producers in order to protect them in the midst of the failure. This is why uh, freedom is directly related, uh, the freedom to succeed is directly related to the freedom to fail. And when a government steps in to limit the consequences of failure, then it must also limit the positives of what an individual can enjoy through success. Thus, the freedom to succeed, which entails risk and reward, is directly proportionate to the freedom to fail. Now, when the government comes in and seeks to wipe out all these negatives, then it's going to borrow from the wealthy, from the achievers, from those who work, those who risk, those who labor, and it's going to give it to those who uh, don't have anything. And this is called socialism today, although in earlier eras uh, it wasn't necessarily called socialism. But we can think back to our study in Genesis a few years ago, in Genesis chapters uh, about 45, 46, 47, when you have the... um, Famine in Egypt, they had the, uh, Joseph had had the dreams of the seven good years and then the seven lean years, and so he told the Pharaoh that for the seven good years to store up a uh, percentage of the crops and resources every year so that they would have 
uh, resources to survive the, the seven bad years. And toward the end of the seven bad years, they were running out of resources, and the uh, people in Egypt were uh, going hungry, and they were going to the Pharaoh to uh, feed us and take care of us. And so the Pharaoh began to buy their land. And when it was all over with, the Pharaoh owned all the land in Egypt. He owned all the means of production. And at that point, all of the servants, I mean, all of the people become servants or slaves. And that's what happens under socialism and Marxism. When the means of production is owned by the government, then the people become slaves. That's why socialism is always a move towards less freedom and greater slavery of people to the government. But there's greater security because the government promises to take care of everything, which is why they call it uh, the nanny state. Now, it's amazing today that a lot of people really don't understand what socialism is. And I don't know if that's just because they were never taught that as they were coming up through government-owned schools because that's what they, 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 they didn't want them to learn what socialism was so they could identify it. It must be so because we have a senator running for president right now, and he sat under a Marxist pastor for 20 years and couldn't identify what Marxism was. So we're going to have a president who can't identify Marxism, no different from people in the country who can't identify uh, socialism. So I've had a couple of cartoons that illustrate uh, the principle of, of uh, socialism. Here's the first one. It's Halloween, so this has a certain uh, timeliness to it. Kids come up to the house, and the man says, look how much candy you have. I'm going to take half and give it to the kids too lazy to go trick-or-treating for themselves. And one of the little kids says, oh, darn, a Democrat. So you hear you have these kids who are going out, and they're, they're working hard. They put on their costumes. They go from house to house and get all this candy. When it's over with, somebody wants to come along and say, okay, you can't have all that candy you went out and got. There are some kids here who just were too lazy to go out, and so we're going to give them half your candy. Now, how does that work? That doesn't work uh, very well. That's a good illustration to use with children if you want to communicate to them what socialism is as opposed to uh, free market economics. Now, there's another <clears throat> email that came across my desk today that I thought also illustrates this and does it well for those who are a little bit older. This is a notice to all employees. As of November 5th, 2008, when President Obama is officially elected into office, our company will instill a few new policies which are in keeping with his new inspiring issues of change and fairness. Number one, all salespeople will be pooling their sales and bonuses into a common pool that will be divided equally between all of you. This will serve to give those of you who are underachieving a fair shake. Number two, all low-level workers will be pooling their wages, including overtime, into a common pool, dividing it equally amongst yourselves. This will help those who are too busy for overtime to reap the rewards from those who have more spare time and can work extra hours. Third, all top management will now be referred to as the government. We will not participate in this pooling experience because the law doesn't apply to us. Fourth, the government will give eloquent speeches to all employees every week, encouraging its workers to continue to work hard for the good of all. Fifth, the employees will be thrilled with these new policies because it's good to spread the wealth. Those of you who have underachieved will finally get an opportunity. 
Those of you who have worked hard and had success will feel more patriotic. Sixth, the last few people who are hired should clean out their desks. Don't feel bad, though, because President Obama will give you free health care, free handouts, free oil for heating your home, free food stamps, and he'll let you stay in your home for as long as you want, even if you can't pay your mortgage. If you appeal directly to our Democratic Congress, you might even get a free flat-screen TV and a coupon for free haircuts. A little humor there. What's interesting is to recognize that what is happening today has been clearly seen to be precisely what is needed to be done to ruin and destroy the United States. Back in 1963, the uh, goals of the uh, Communist Party for destroying America were uh, read into the congressional record, and they listed 45 different uh, tactics that the uh, Communist Party in America thought were necessary in order to wipe out and destroy the nation. Some of these are pertinent today. Number 25 was break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. Number 26, present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy. This was in 1963. It's kind of helpful to look back, isn't it? 27th, to infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. Number 28, eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principle of separation of church and state. 29, discredit the American Constitution by calling it inadequate, old-fashioned, out of step with modern needs, a hindrance to cooperation between nations on a worldwide basis. Now, I didn't want to take the time to play it tonight, but if you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to get with somebody who has a computer and listen to the interview that uh, Senator Obama gave to a radio station in 2001, where he then, in that interview, he clearly stated that his agenda, he believed that the basic flaw of the Warren Court, which was the radical court back in the uh, 60s, and the basic flaw of the civil rights movement was that they didn't try to redistribute the wealth and to pass the wealth along. And he goes back and he says some extremely damaging things about related to his view of the Constitution. He thinks the Constitution is basically flawed. Now, how a man who is running for the highest office in the land who has to swear that he's going to preserve and defend the Constitution can question the Constitution at its core is beyond me, but that's what happens as a result of postmodernism. So he has already made statements, along with numerous other liberals who are discrediting the Constitution. Number 30, discredit the American founding fathers, present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. Uh, 31 was to belittle all forms of American culture, and discourage the teaching of American history on the ground that it was a, only a minor part of the big picture. Give more emphasis to Russian, <coughs> Russian history since the communist 
took over. And 32, support any socialist movement to give centralized control over any part of the culture, education, social agencies, welfare programs, uh, mental health clinics, etc. This is all part of the plan. Now, I have something up here that relates to this that was handed to me on Sunday. This is from the Wall Street Journal on Friday, October 24, 2008 and is on their editorial page. This was in Section A18 on their opinion page. And the headline, it's down towards the bottom, the headline reads, Big Labor Does Gay Marriage. Here's a pop quiz. Who's donated the most money in an, uh, to, <clears throat> who's donated the most money toward an effort in California to defeat Proposition 8? If you pass Proposition 8, then you, you're supporting traditional marriage. If you defeat Proposition 8, then you're, they've got the wording backwards, so it's confusing. But if you defeat the proposition, uh, then you are in favor of homosexual marriage. So to defeat Proposition 8, initiative on the November 4th ballot that would define marriage as between a man and a woman in the state. Is it A, gay advocacy organizations, B, civil rights groups, or C, the California Teachers Association? Which group has given the most money? C, the California Teachers Association. So back to this uh, point um, 32, support any socialist movement. Remember, that goes back to a couple of points back to in uh, to about point 26 on promoting the homosexual agenda. Support any socialist movement to give centralized control over any part of the culture, education, social agencies, etc. So here we have education promoting homosexual uh, marriage and the uh, breakdown there. So you can read that editorial later. They make some very, uh, <clears throat> very important points. So what we have today in the modern equivalence to what the ancient world had under certain kinds of monarchy and, and totalitarian governments in the ancient world is our modern form of socialism and Marxism. And at its core, all these systems of government, socialism and Marxism, have this idea that there is a ruling elite that has the wisdom to determine how much money, affluence, or success a person ought to have, how much is too much. And what will happen, we've already seen it this year with their bringing, most people didn't realize that, that wealthy was only $250,000. Most people thought wealthy was $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, $50 million. But now it's, it's getting closer and closer, and it's breaching into the middle class. And this is who, who has the right, who, who can determine how much money, influence, or success a person should have and, and then tell them that they have to give the vast majority of what they make after that to somebody else. What gives a government the, that right to be that tyrannical and that domineering? Well, that's what's at the essence of socialism and Marxism, to take freedom away. Uh, these Systems always emphasize something about security and providing security for people uh, and that they need to give up their freedom and their options for true success in order to have uh, real security. And then those who are achievers, they're going to take what they make, what they produce, 
and they're going to transfer it to those who aren't willing to work and aren't willing to succeed. Remember the parable of the talents. When Jesus got to the third one who didn't do anything, he said, you lazy and wicked servant. But in socialism, that's not politically correct, so Jesus is just a bad, evil capitalist. So what happens is the wealthy become demonized and class warfare is encouraged. And all of this begins with taking away an emphasis on the individual and individual rights and individual responsibility and the uh, right of the individual to work and enjoy the benefits of his own work. Then from there, we went to the second divine institution. We're going to come back to look at government again as the two intersect in just a minute. Marriage is defined biblically as between one man and one woman. Polygamy was never endorsed by God. The few instances of polygamy in the Old Testament were never approved by God or endorsed by God. And, in fact, he warned kings against that in Deuteronomy 17.17. It was never something that was normative in Israel. Uh, Both Old and New Testaments condemn homosexuality along with numerous other sins, adultery and false witness, arrogance, pride, gossip, slander. All of these are prohibited because they are destructive. First of all, because they violate God's character, and secondly, because they are destructive to social relations. But they also bring about a tremendous economic price when they are allowed to run rampant, and I will look at that, some, some figures on that in just a minute. All of the founding fathers recognized that this was true, that you couldn't separate ethics from the social and the economic, that they were all interconnected. And this was true up until the early part of the 20th century. Now, but a lot of things began to change. And in the mid-60s, there was a rise of political influence from the homosexual lobby, and this has become more and more dominant as they've raised more and more money over the last uh, 40 years, and we've seen a tremendous uh, change take place in our culture. And this has been part of the pattern of assault on the founding vision of uh, of this nation. And we have all been effectively propagandized by the media in relation to homosexuality. Here are some facts that you may not be aware of. In a 1998 poll by uh, Hunter College in New York, only 3% of the population, excuse me, my notes are wrong, that was a 2008 poll, that was earlier this year. 2008 poll by Hunter College in New York, only 3% of the population is homosexual. Didn't know that, did you? You thought it was much greater than that. Second, Traditional marriages last for 20 years or longer. The average sodomite relationship is a year and a half. There's no stability there. Most married couples are faithful to one another, but a study in Holland among homosexual marriages there found that committed homosexual couples had an average of eight sexual partners per year. That's among the committed couples. Uh, Also, homosexual and lesbian couples have the highest level of partner violence. Lesbians are four times more likely to be the victims of violence in a domestic relationship than uh, married women in a traditional marriage. 
And a study of Scandinavia where they've recognized same-sex marriage for over 10 years, marriage is virtually disappearing. The vast majority of children are born out of wedlock, and there's just a complete breakdown uh, within the home. The same trend is happening in the United States as we've gone through the the whole transition um, coming out of the uh, 60s that uh, where people don't get married or they just live together. Those born to unwed parents are seven times more likely to end up in poverty. That's the economic consequence of not having a law addressing the social ethical issue. They're seven times more likely to end up in poverty, and they also represent 70% of the prison population. So when we get our laws away from ethics and righteousness, and when we uh, allow these things to be shaped by a social agenda, there are horrific economic consequences. You can't separate the social policies, the, the, the economic agendas, into two uh, distinct areas. $112 billion is spent on dealing with problems caused by out-of-wedlock births. Social policies result in uh, economic uh, consequences. Now, we have to remember that homosexuality is not being singled out by Christians as something to target and to focus on. It is the homosexuals who have come out of the closet and uh, made an issue out of everything. And what Christians are doing is standing up for the traditional law of the of the land embedded in the Constitution and for the view, the uh, divine viewpoint standard of God is represented in the Scripture. But see, part of what is driving the homosexual agenda is that they understand something that most Christian couples don't understand, and that is that the family is the engine of education. And this is what the Word of God teaches in, in the Psalms, that, uh, blessed is the, that the children are a blessing of the Lord, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. The image there is of a warrior who is shooting his arrows into the enemy that the more arrows you have, the more effect you're going to have on the enemy. And that is uh, analogous to a family, parents, who have children, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then send them out to do battle in the uh, human viewpoint pagan culture. And so, uh, but parents, too many Christian parents over the last generations have just shunted their kids off to public government schools to be educated and brainwashed in secular humanism, and they have completely failed in their job as parents to teach and train these kids to think biblically and interact uh, with the culture on a divine viewpoint framework. You go back into the Old Testament, and you see that this is one of the primary emphases in the Mosaic Law for families. The family is the training arena for children, and these homosexuals understand that because they want to have legitimate marriages so they can adopt these children, and then they can instill their uh, values into those children and send them out into the society and the culture in order to uh, change and affect the culture. As a result of that, they want to redefine marriage. They want to redefine the family. 
and they want to portray traditional families as aberrations that uh, Ozzie and Harriet were nut jobs and the Cleavers were psychotic and, and that just isn't anything normal and so we want to go back and, and uh, change everything and, and it's really more normal to have um, two men or two women uh, raising, uh, raising kids than a man and a woman. Now, let's look at a couple of things in, in, uh, in Scripture. The reason I go to the law is because in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 7, as I pointed out Sunday morning, is that the law is righteous. It is not that we're trying to take the Mosaic law as a pattern for every other nation or to impose that on the United States, but that in the Mosaic law we see one instantiation, one example of how God's character is worked out within a human government structure. And it is stated in Deuteronomy 4, Moses says that that as they obey these laws and implement the Mosaic law, then the peoples around them, in the second half of verse 6, as you keep them, uh, and that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, most people today in our culture look at the Mosaic Law and say, how restrictive, how, how domineering, how, how it destroys um, liberty or freedom. It's just, just this moral straitjacket. But what God says is that if you implement this, it produces a prosperous culture. And so the nations would look at them and say, this is a wise and understanding people. Oh, what great nation is there that has such statutes and judgments as, and as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today. Now, as related to families, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 gives us a core mandate within Deuteronomy. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, that doesn't mean that you're giving a Bible class 24-7. But this is a mandate to parents that you are supposed to have your soul so saturated with the Word of God that as you go through life, you go to the grocery store, you go to, uh, you're working out in the, in the garden somewhere, or you're going to school, or the kids come home and say, you know what I heard in school today? that you're able to sit down at, at that moment while you're cooking in the kitchen, whatever, and just talk about whatever the issue is from a biblical viewpoint. I, I'll never forget the time, first time I ever was exposed to evolution, I think. I was in the sixth grade, had a wonderful teacher, loved that teacher, my favorite teacher of all the teachers I ever had in school well, was that teacher. And she was a believer. She was Episcopal or something, but she was reading for this story one day, and it, it was about how the... Moon uh, basically evolved how the solar system evolved, how the moon came out of the earth. And I came home and I told my mother about it. And my mother said, well, let's sit down and read Genesis 1. Is that what Genesis 1 says? See, that is just a great example of how Deuteronomy 6 is supposed to operate in the lives of parents and children. Parents' primary task is to train children to think biblically not to give them 20 options. I've heard parents say, well, I'm not going to teach my kids about religion or I'm not going to teach my kids about politics. When they get old, I want them to have the freedom to do what they want to do. Okay, so you don't really believe anything's worth holding on to, is it, or passing on? What idiots. 
You know, parents' job is to instill doctrine into those kids from the time they first come out of the womb. And that is, that, that's the role of the family. And another passage that's always an interesting passage to deal with in, um, in Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 21, the passage that deals with parents and rebellious teenagers. Now, remember, the idea of a teenager or an adolescent is a uh, basically a construct that came up after the Great Depression. I mean, it's a 20th century American phenomenon. Up through, through most of world history, you were a child and then you became an adult. There wasn't this transition period when you got to be irresponsible and, uh, you know, follow your hormones wherever they led you. Uh, this is a uniquely American phenomenon. And... So what they're talking about here is an, uh, a, ch- a child that has passed bar mitzvah, older than 13. It's no longer a child and is rebellious. Now, a child who has not learned to respect authority in the home will not respect authority in the state. And so this is a child that has grown up, reached adulthood, and is incorrigible has demonstrated time and time again a complete failure to be oriented to authority, and therefore the parents recognize that if this child is released onto society, it, this, it's just going to be horrendous. This, this child is going to turn into a psychotic serial killer or uh, serial rapist or something. And so they bring this child before the uh, assembly, and they accuse the child, and then the child is to be stoned, and the parents begin. It is something that is extremely serious, but it was designed to protect what? To protect the nation and to preserve the family. And once these things would break down, then uh, it would just have a domino effect through through the entire culture. And And the emphasis here that we see from the Bible is the parents are accountable. They are responsible, divine institution number one, for training children. Well, as you, most of you know, we have various bills that are always passed by uh, educrats and their influence in uh, Austin and influence in Washington that constantly break down the rights that parents have to oversee the education of their kids. And when we look at these two presidential candidates, uh, Senator McCain supports parental rights in education, that parents have a right to supervise and to uh, permit or not permit certain things to be taught to their children. Uh, Obama, on the other hand, opposes parental rights. So he is uh, in violation of divine institution uh, number three at this point. Now, another thing, another type of legislation that affects this is that Senator McCain has recently proposed, a sell, uh, I think it was uh, possibly a $7,000 uh, tax credit per child. In, in right after World War II, one of the things that, that contributed to the prosperity of the baby boom period in the 50s was that the Congress passed a $600 per child tax credit. Now, $600 doesn't sound like much today, but that was a lot of money back in the 40s. And if you were parents and you had two or three kids, uh, then you could get uh, $1,200, $1,800 tax credit. And, and in 1946, 1947, when this was passed, the average income of a family of four was probably about eight or nine thousand dollars. 
So that was a tremendous amount of money and resulted in the fact that most families did not have to pay any income tax uh, in, in the period of the 1950s when perhaps many of us were, were growing up. And that's why our moms were able to stay at home. They didn't have to go out and get a job. And so it was laws like that that promoted uh, a strong family and encouraged a strong family. But by the 1970s, that had deteriorated. It had not changed. It had not kept up with inflation so that as a result of the all the inflation at the end of the 70s, a lot of mothers, even though they were perhaps completely against working outside the home, were forced by the economics of government policy to work outside the home. And it now we're at a point where over 50% of, of kids in America are born to single-parent households. Once you get the vast number of women working outside of the home, uh, that just contributed to an already rising divorce rate, breakdown in the family, and so you begin to see how all the systems begin to break down, and you get into a you get into a cultural uh, cultural collapse. <clears throat> Another area that's related to family and wealth goes back to uh, the inheritance tax. Proverbs 13:22 says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So the Bible values passing on inheritance. In fact, it was illegal under the Mosaic law to have an inheritance tax so that wealth could be accumulated generationally through the families. Uh, this is reiterated in 2 Corinthians 12:14 where Paul says that children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents should lay up for the children. Parents should accumulate wealth so that it can be passed on to the next generation so that uh, wealth can accumulate. This comes out of a proper view of divine institution number one and divine institution number, uh, number three. Now, the fourth divine institution is government. The fourth divine institution is government, which is established in Genesis chapter 9. And the fifth divine institution is nations, which is established coming out of the uh, episode at the Tower of Babel. They are distinguished because they're separated in time, but the way we experience them, they work together. These two divine institutions were both formed after the fall and after the flood in order to restrain evil, in order to prevent evil from attacking the first three divine institutions. So that one of the roles of government is to protect individual responsibility, protect individual ownership of property, protect the accumulation of wealth, and to protect the spiritual accountability of every individual so that they have the freedom to decide what they're going to do in terms of their relationship with God. What we see also from Scripture, comparing uh, Romans chapter uh, 12 to uh, passages in the Old Testament, is that government is considered righteous. Those who are in the government are ministers of God. They have a role, and that is to preserve righteousness within the society. That is, they have to protect the society internally, from enemies from within that would take away from uh, righteousness, that would attack the divine institutions, and also to protect the nation from external enemies, from evil men who would seek to take power, uh, steal land, steal property, and <clears throat> destroy the nation. Uh, 
Now, the basis for government is laid down in the Noahic Covenant with the death penalty, and this is seen in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. Uh, In that covenant, God says to Noah, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The purpose for the death penalty is not to uh, prevent crime. It's not a prevention mechanism. It is a, a protection mechanism. Look at the analogy. If a wild animal kills a human being, what do we do to this day? If a bear or a lion or a tiger gets loose and attacks a human being and kills that human being, what do we do? We kill it. Why do we do that? Because we know that once it crosses that border, that boundary, and it attacks and kills a human being, that it's going to do it again. God's laying down the same principle here with regard to murder. Once a human being crosses that boundary and kills another human being where there's no longer a sense of restraint, a sense of respect for other human beings because they're created in the image of God, then that person needs to be executed to protect other individuals, divine institution number one, from this individual who has become so perverted in his soul that he can no longer exercise self-discipline, self-control, and self-restraint. And so this becomes the basis not only for government, but primarily for the judiciary. Because once man has been delegated this responsibility, then he has to decide how he's going to implement this this responsibility. How is he going to properly evaluate the circumstances of someone's death? How is he going to uh, develop lines and rules of evidence to determine uh, whether a murder has taken place or whether it was simply an accident? Uh, Who's going to be the ultimate decider? Who's going to be the ultimate arbiter? Who's going to be the judge? Who's going to uh, implement the penalty? All of these things Uh, come to bear. So uh, it looks like it's just a very simple command, but in order to implement it, man had to think about that and develop all of these other structures related to uh, related to government, and that that then develops the whole systems of laws and the the legal uh, requirements that are related to bringing about these these judgments. Well, if it's not murder and it's just manslaughter, what kind of penalty are we going to have? Well, if it wasn't manslaughter, if it was an accident, well, is there any kind of accountability? And you see how that eventually leads to judicial decisions in every area of life. And so this becomes the foundation of the whole principle of uh, of judicial accountability within man's environment. And then when you come to uh, Genesis chapter 11 in the construction of the Tower of Babel, God breaks down the languages, the language barrier, by uh, confusing the languages, and this is going to force the human race to divide up into tribes and clans, and these will eventually develop into, uh, into nations. And God has established these boundaries. In Acts 17:26, Paul mentions this and says that God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So the... Uh, the inference from this is is that there are nations that have legitimate boundaries, that God has established these, and that these nations have a right to 
uh, protect their sovereignty and that these nations need to maintain their national identity and their national distinctions, and they have the right of self-protection against uh, any other nations that may be attacking them. This is something that is going to play into the last principle we'll look at on uh, uh, our relationship to Israel and the nation's relationship to Israel because this brings in this whole issue of Zionism and what role is Zionism correct, incorrect, what is Zionism, and uh, is it legitimate for Israel to have a state, and is it legitimate for Israel to do whatever it takes to protect their national identity? And I would say, yes, it is, and it flows out of the same principle that that comes out of this for every nation, that every nation has the right to protect uh, to protect their national sovereignty. And so when we come to uh, this last part with government, we'll see some very uh, interesting things when it comes to examining our candidates. So we'll wait and finish this up on Thursday night. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening and to uh, recognize that your word clearly addresses all of these different dimensions of life and that as we look at them and have a biblical uh, framework, we can then evaluate each of the candidates, each of the parties, each of the platforms, to see which it comes closest to your word. Unfortunately, many times, uh, many elements of individuals' positions or their platforms and parties are far removed from your word, and we have to make very difficult choices. So we pray that you would give us wisdom. And, Father, we pray that in this election process that, that uh, we pray that you would still protect this nation, that you would protect our freedoms, that the, no matter what happens, that this would be an opportunity for you to be glorified and for Christians to be uh, unified around the truth of your word and that ultimately it would be an opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed and for it to be proclaimed not only uh, by each of us through words but also in our lives as we learn to relax in the midst of whatever crises or calamities uh, come our way. And Father, we're thankful that you control history and therefore we can rest and relax in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.